This program is supported by A to Z Wineworks, a best for the world B Corps dedicated to combining commerce with conscience while offering great quality, food-friendly Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Chardonnay. A to Z Wineworks, the essence of Oregon. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. You've probably read someone's half-joking, half-serious tweet about it. Maybe you've rolled your eyes and expressed the sentiment to a friend. We don't need another story about... On one level, as the novelist Garth Greenwell writes in the November issue, this feeling is part of a, quote, huge and necessary correction, end quote an attempt to bring attention to stories and voices that have long been treated as less universal than those of white, cisgender, and male authors. But what do we really mean when we talk about relevance in art? And what assumptions about our relationship with art might be preserved and concealed in these dismissals? Greenwell's essay traces the surprising history of the word relevance a term that does heavy lifting in today's discourse, and asks what aesthetics and ethical costs we might incur when we prize content over form or pretend to know in advance what we need from works of art. I spoke with Greenwell about the importance of a universality of difference, the danger of closing ourselves off from transformative desires, and the parallels between the contemporary focus on content and the effects of online dating algorithms. So I'd like to start with how you begin the piece, which is this etymological investigation of the word relevance. So could you talk through that etymology and, you know, your motivations for revisiting that linguistic transformation? Yeah, so I guess, you know, the instinct to turn to words themselves and to the histories of words is pretty deep-seated in me. You know, for decades, I studied poetry, wrote poetry, and it always seemed to me to be true that words carry their histories with them. And even if we're not aware of them, in fact, there's a way in which their histories continue to exert a kind of pressure on a word. And, you know, as I've become increasingly uneasy with the way that relevance um, and relevant are used in contemporary discourse about art and, you know, and really feeling like at some point I kind of lost the thread as what, what we actually meant when we said a work of art was relevant or irrelevant. Um, you know, I turned to the OED to try to, um, to try to see, you know, what is it that I'm missing in the word? And it was, as almost always is the case, you know, it became a kind of adventure to follow the history of the word and to see how closely bound it is with our word relieve and how, in fact, there's a common forebear between relevant and relieve and the two modern words have kind of split the meanings of their common forebear. And I found like that felt kind of emotionally resonant to me that in fact, the way that we use or the way that we think of an idea of relevance in art right now actually does have to do with questions of injury and relief of injury. Right. And going to sort of like the genesis of this 
piece. You know, and you don't mention any specific controversies. There's sort of a part where you talk about, oh, I half kiddingly, but also maybe kind of seriously say, you know, when you're at Prairie Lights, oh, I don't want to read another book about blah, blah, blah again. But you should feel free not to answer this. But as you were writing this, were there any particular debates or controversies that you felt compelled to look into or that you felt that you were writing toward? You know, I actually don't think there there was anything specific. You know, I mean, I think at any point one can open up Twitter and find examples of uses of the idea of relevance that I'm questioning in the essay. But it really was, the essay really did arise out of kind of looking into myself as much as from sort of looking at some larger capital D discourse. I mean, I really had become troubled by my own sense at times of dismissing art based on its subject matter and sort of saying, oh, we don't need another story about X, Y, or Z. And in fact, you know, that violates everything that I really believe about art, which is that, you know, the whole reason we have art is because we care about things other than subject matter. And that in fact, you know, I mean, a central belief of my heart, of my life is that the stuff of literature is everywhere and that the stuff of great art that you know the literary imagination has nothing to do with external event or exotic location instead it has to do with a way of looking and that you know training that peculiar faculty that is the literary imagination on anything can produce revelation and so it was more i mean i i do talk about capital D discourse and I talk about, you know, a way that we use this word on Twitter and elsewhere. But really it was my own, my sense of myself that I was saying things as jokes. And yet there's a a kind of frightening way in which something that, you know, we tell it first as a joke and as something that obviously we don't really believe, like obviously we don't really believe that there aren't new stories to be told about heterosexual male desire. And yet it gives us a little frisson to sort of tell a joke about it. Well, there's a way in which jokes can then become the discourse itself. You know, I I do feel this a lot about Twitter, that we tweet things that, of course, we don't really believe, that are, of course, sort of half tongue-in-cheek. And if we call each other on these tweets, we say, oh, it's just a tweet. You know, it's not like I'm writing a well-reasoned essay. But actually, I mean, Twitter has become, to a great extent, kind of our critical discourse. And it is a way of making obviously unacceptable ideas palatable. Yeah. These this kind of half joking. Yeah. So I was I was concerned about myself. I mean, it really is an essay that is about checking myself and correcting my own sense of these things. Yeah. And of course there are myriads of uh half formed ideas that are passed off as ideas, like again, because of the the brevity of online discourse or how quickly it moves, it can just perpetuate very not great tendencies. Yeah. Again, nothing new here. Just want <laughs> just wanted to note that. Um but you know, in your in your essay you argue against a certain idea of universality that you say exists mainly to centralize the experiences of people in privileged social positions. But instead of dismissing universality altogether, you suggest a different conception of it, writing, quote, it seems to me that we either believe that all human experience is valuable, 
that any life has the potential to reveal something true for every life, a universality achieved, not through the effacement of difference, but through devotion to it, or we don't, end quote. That idea of universality is a little counterintuitive, but so could you explain it a bit more and how universality of difference is not the same as the absence of universality? Right. Yeah. So the idea of universality that I reject, which is an idea that really did reign in the academy, the literary establishment when I was a student and a graduate student 20 years ago, which, you know, was an idea of universality that said, for instance, if you were a queer writer, that if you wrote books that were centered on queer lives, then in some way you were not speaking to the central truths of human existence, that always queer lives would be eccentric to some more truly universal experience. So this idea of universality as something that is unmarked by the particulars of history, of context, of politics, of identity, of all these things. That idea of universality, I absolutely reject. To me, the whole miracle of art is not that we strip away the local in order to arrive at some unmarked universal which doesn't exist anywhere. It's instead that through devotion to the local, through devotion to particularity, we arrive at truths that are in a, a, in a way that seems to me just truer to my experience of literature, true of humanness itself. So it's not that if a book is focused on queer experience, if a book is focused on Black experience, if a, if a book is focused on, you know, a rural community in Kentucky, that it can't speak to some larger human experience. It's actually precisely because of that local focus that we arrive at something that can feel revelatory to anyone who encounters the work of art. I mean, this really is the reason I've devoted my whole life to literature and to art is because it does seem to me miraculous that I can read Sappho and Mishima and Adichie and, you know, have this dual experience that on one hand, I am being shown worlds that are absolutely alien to me. And on the other hand, I am being shown truths that reveal me to myself. And that earlier academic idea of universality, which I mean, I think still is very much present among us, you know, that wants to say, you know, Hemingway is universal in a way that James Baldwin is not. That, you know, there is some way in which James Baldwin is marked by race or marked by sexuality, um, marked by politics in a way that Hemingway writing about a guy in a boat fishing is not. Like that seems to me false. And all that idea does is it allows a certain subject position, which I think is generally speaking a subject position that is heterosexual white male, to pretend that it is not marked by the particularities of history and of social context. It allows a kind of dominant position to pretend that it's not any position at all. Well, I reject that. And what scares me a little bit, or what, what I mistrust in our use of the word relevant, when we say that a work of art is either relevant or irrelevant, is that it's enacting a similar kind of effacement, that there is a way in which it too is laying claim to some unmarked perspective from which relevance and irrelevance can be 
judged, as opposed to, to acknowledging the positionality of any idea of relevance we might try to articulate coming from a question of subject matter, coming from a question of what a work of art is about or what it represents. Right. To what extent do you feel that things like categorization, whether it's in bookstores or if it's in an art museum, sort of breaking out works of art as, you know, African-American art section, the queer section of a bookstore is, is kind of part of creating this false sense of universality, but then also maybe now a false sense of, oh yeah, you just read one of these books from one of these sections, you look at this art and then you have kind of solved it. You've done the work of exploring this other position and you right. can just sort of move on. Yeah, right. One thing that I hope is clear when reading the essay is how ambivalent and uncertain I feel about kind of every proposition I make in the essay. I mean, I think, you know, these questions are genuinely hard questions, and they're genuinely hard questions because the stakes can seem high and because there can be benevolent motivations behind whatever answer one gives. So, when I was a kid in Louisville, Kentucky, with no access to queer culture in the pre-internet era, with no idea of how to research, you know, what queer literature might be, the fact that the local independent bookstore, Holly Cook in Louisville, had a lesbian and gay section tucked in a shadowy, dark corner where I would go and almost at random grab a book and then run away somewhere else to sit down and read it, that was absolutely life-saving. And that's how I discovered, you know, Mishima and Baldwin and Edmund White and Jeanette Winterson and you know, these writers who are central to me and who were really for a kid, for a gay kid in Kentucky, really kind of life rafts, mm. you know, thank God there was an LGBT section um, or a lesbian and gay section in that bookstore that did the work of just gathering together these queer writers for me. Now, I often feel very ambivalently about um, LGBT sections and my local independent bookstore in Iowa City, which is my spiritual home. I love them absolutely. Prairie Lights. There is an LGBT section and I don't love it. It is also kind of back in a corner. It's very small. There's clearly, you know, there's a way that it seems to me very strange that, you know, Proust is not in the LGBT section. Henry James is mm -hmm. not in the LGBT section. You know, Alan Hollinghurst is not in the LGBT section. So there does seem to be a kind of caste system involved. And in that instance, I think, well, you know what, let's put all of these books in literature, you know, let's put all of these fiction books in literature. And, and, you know, and now it's so easy for a 14 year old kid, even in a place like rural Iowa, um, and it doesn't take long to get to rural Iowa from Iowa City, can go on the internet and find a list of queer writers that then he or she or they can find in um, a literature section. On a third hand, it is true that when I go to another one of my favorite bookstores, which is Three Lives in Manhattan, and I go to their LGBT section, which is, you know, 
front and center and seems like a position of honor and is full of all of the books. And um, that then seems like a great thing to have an LGBT section. So there's no right answer to a question like this. It's always a negotiation. And, you know, and it's not just about books. It's also a question about our lives. You know, to what extent is it important, and it is, to have spaces that are dedicated to a particular category, if we want to call that, you know, it's, it does seem to me important to have queer only spaces, to have woman only spaces, to have black only spaces. It also seems to me really important that we have spaces where we come together and mix and genuinely attempt to affirm values of heterogeneity and diversity. Like both of those things are true. And an LGBT section in a bookstore or a library is, you know, I think a pretty low stakes example of a question that to me gets at the heart of what it means to be what it means to exist in a democracy what it means to genuinely believe in diversity in your essay you mention dating apps where it's again this is another way in which our digital lives have sort of filtered into our consciousness in ways that we haven't perhaps grappled with where again you can choose a category of person in these dating apps and then you can only you can swipe left on them you can have the most uh, surface level interaction possible with them and that completely ignores how desire works and that the there i mean to me there's nothing more sort of like white and patriarchal and kind of limited to believe that we are always rational actors who always know what we want and that we can control, you know, our surroundings. It filters through so many different things, this idea that we know what we want, because we really don't most of the time. Yeah. And I guess I would just say, and again, I want to register my ambivalence here, because on one hand, I think dating apps like Grindr um, have been genuinely miraculous in a lot of ways. If you are, Absolutely. you know, a queer person in rural Iowa, or if, with Grinder, if you're a, a queer man in in rural Iowa, and you get on Grinder, and you know, all of the sudden, you have a community in a way that you would not have. You know, it's also it's much easier to disclose things like HIV status on Grinder than it often is in person. So, you know, I don't want to say anything so simple as like dating apps are bad. At the same time, it seems to me a really grievous impoverishment of human life to Mm. do something like have a dating app, set filters that exclude people based on race or size or age. Mm. Because as you say, and, and as I tried to argue in that article, I mean, one of the great gifts of desire is that it surprises us. We are surprised, like desire is the great unmanageable force in human life. You know, it's the reason Mm -hmm. desire is the best plot device, that desire (laughs) disrupts all of our intentions. It disrupts our will. You know, that is one of the ways in which desire can be a great force of revelation, that it, it can reveal us to ourselves. And, you know, my own experience as a, as a queer person, as an erotic person, as a sexual person was in what I think is one of the great inventions of queer people of gay men, which is that system of organized promiscuity, which is cruising. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the experience of analog cruising, where you are actually in a physical space, coming together for transient 
sexual encounters or at least potentially transient sexual encounters, that is an experience in which, you know, someone whose naked torso on Grindr might, I might just, you know, flip past without a second thought Mm -hmm. or someone who a filter might screen out Mm -hmm. because of the way he moves or because of the way he smells or because of the sound of his voice can be electrifying. So to to filter out chance, to sort of say, I know enough about what I desire. I know enough about who I am to decide I don't want people from this race. I don't want anyone over this age. I don't want anyone over this weight. That just seems to me just a grievous mistake about what it means to be a human being. Like it you know, questions of morality aside, you know, questions of racism aside, just it seems to me deeply sad and unfortunate because it is actually a great diminishment of the self. Like mm-hmm. one is bigger than those filters. One's ability to respond to others is more ample than those filters. And I guess I would say the same thing is true of art. You know, if we yeah. make a decision, and this is, you know, uh, again, sort of one of my central beliefs is that actually art and desire are very analogous sort of experiences that, you know, in the same way, if I say something like, I am not interested in reading anything by a cishet white man. Um you know, I mean, that just seems to me grievously impoverishing of human possibility, both in the sense of what I am saying about cishet white men and, mm-hmm. you know, what the experience of being a cishet white man, how that has access to universal human experience, universal truths to, to the experience of being a human being. And it is also radically impoverishing of myself and my sense of what I am able to respond to. It, it does seem to me that when engaging with art, that for that experience, and this is true, engaging with art, engaging with another person, mm-hmm. for that experience to be transformative, which is, I think, what we hope for when we go to art, what we hope for when we look for love what we hope for when we follow desire. We want to be transformed. And in order to be available to transformation, I think one has to allow oneself to be vulnerable. And one of the aspects of that vulnerability is a recognition that we do not know ourselves as well as we think we do. Right. And part of, you know, what we can excuse about dating apps, let's say, is that we don't have enough time and attention and these are finite resources that are valuing, you know, one person's story or one person's body or devaluing or ignoring another. You're, and your response to this is really interesting. Instead of saying it's false that, you know, time and attention are finite, you put forward the possibility that it's an ethically damaging perspective. Quote, maybe there is virtue in rejecting any reality construed along these lines. Maybe there are certain choices that so deform our character that no claim of necessity can justify them. End quote. 
it's interesting that you identify elsewhere in the essay as an atheist because in a way it sounds here like you're defending a vision of literature as something sacred, suggesting that if we treat it like just another finite material commodity, we'll be sacrificing the very quality that makes it worthwhile. Would you say that this argument involves an element of faith or would you ground it in a different way? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I am often accused of sort of smuggling religion into my thinking <laughs> in a way that I explicitly disavow by saying that I'm an atheist. I mean, I I will acknowledge that I think it is an, it is an argument that claims that our usual ways of thinking about materiality and dearth and scarcity are inadequate. I don't think that's just true when we're talking about art. I also think it's true when we're talking about money. You know, the Republican argument against having a national endowment for the arts is that, you know, we need that money elsewhere. And when there's hunger and when there are homeless people, how can you justify giving grants to artists? Well, actually, because value doesn't work that way. And because we know that by affirming the arts, we are in fact, that the value we are asserting is not um, necessarily translatable or catchable or legible in a kind of spreadsheet. We also know that Republicans who make those arguments from scarcity are in fact, spending billions and billions and billions of dollars elsewhere, that it's not a question. So it seems to me that very often arguments from necessity and arguments from scarcity are a kind of sleight of hand. And that the question of what is actually scarce and what is actually necessary depends on assumptions that too often we allow to go under-examined. So I guess I would say that that idea that you know, because there are only so many hours in a day and because we only live so many days, um, mm-hmm. you know, that therefore we have to have a kind of scarcity mi- mindset as we approach art. That just seems to me radically deforming to an extent that it will damage our capacity to receive the real value that art can offer us. And, you know, it also when I see that, and I do see those arguments often enough flitter through my social media feeds. And as I say in the essay, you know, actually maybe time, maybe there are all sorts of sort of false or illusionary ways in which we organize our lives such that time seems scarce. And that Mm -hmm. in fact, we could delete our Twitter accounts. And in fact, we could stop our Netflix subscription and then maybe time wouldn't seem like such a scarce resource. You know, I mean, there is a way in which, as I say, I'm always deeply mistrustful of arguments from scarcity or arguments from necessity and that these human virtues I'm talking about, the human virtues of openness and vulnerability and acceptance of the extent to which we're mysteries to ourselves and this, what seems to me a kind of bedrock value which I will say it's a faith because, you know, I'm, I don't know how to argue for this in a kind of rationally unimpeachable way, but that any human experience gives access to all human experience, that any human experience brought under the peculiar pressure that is the literary or the aesthetic imagination can deliver us to revelations that are meaningful 
for any human being, that there is, as I say, this kind of true universality, which, as I think I say in the essay, is the universality of being a meaning-seeking animal in a universe where meanings falter, that that experience of trying to make sense of a world that persistently baffles us, that that is a human universal, and that any life brought under the lens of the literary imagination can um, be revelatory of that. Another facet of participating in the literary imagination sometimes involves things like writing fellowship applications. <laughs> um, and you have to argue for the relevance of your work or you have to tell, you know, when you're pitching something, you have to say, yeah, this is really a book for right now. Right. And because there's so many things happening, it probably is a book for right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, but you still have to put it in those terms. So one obvious question here is how do you manage not having these questions on your mind if having to answer them has become one of the material conditions of art making? Yeah. And there is no pure answer to that. Um, any answer to that, I think, is messy. And there's no weird trick. <laughs> yeah, you know, unfortunately, or if there is, please, someone let me know what it is. You know, <laughs> something that has been a surprise to me in the last four or five years since I published my first book is the extent to which the public life of being a writer, which I would say applying for grants and fellowships, and certainly, you know, having to talk about one's books in interviews and having, you know, sort of being a, a marketing executive for one's own book, that that is exactly the opposite from the real work of writing. That, you know, everything that is outward facing, everything that is trying to pin one's book, you know, basically trying to convince anyone to read your book, that, I mean, that is exactly the opposite relationship to the world for me as art making, because art making is always about looking inward and art making is always about being bewildered. And I, you know, something that often I find deeply disturbing about my own experience or my own presence as a kind of public writer is, you know, as I'm giving talks or, or doing interviews about my work. And I hear myself say things with a kind of certainty that I think I don't actually feel certain about anything to this extent. And certainly when I was writing this book, you know, I did not write this book out of these kinds of convictions that now I'm speaking about, you know, I mean, so I, I do like, like, I, I mean, there is a part of me that has a kind of ideal of the artist as kind of ascetic, the artist, the artist as saint. That purity is not available to me in the material circumstances of my life. I have to <laughs> care about things like grants and fellowships and, you know, convincing publishers to um, to publish my books. So there is a way in which, to me, it's very important to try to constantly remind myself of the distinction between being a writer in the world and actually making art. And speaking of material conditions, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, do you find that the pandemic has affected your sense of value or meaning of writing? Yeah, I think so. And the pandemic, and then much more so, 
at the end of August, I had a, a health crisis that um, sent me into the ICU for over a week. And it's been a very long recovery from that. Mm. And both of those things, the pandemic and then this health crisis, forced an interruption of you know the kind of constant motion of my public life as a writer and as an educator. And yes, I mean, certainly it has made me take stock and also, you know, being confronted with my mortality in a way that I've never been before and that at 42, I did not expect to be for at least another couple of decades has mm -hmm. definitely made me take a step back and say, wow, actually, I'm spending an awful lot of time doing those things that actually I know are secondary to the work that I feel real urgency about. There has been some real taking stock and thinking about how can I reorganize my life in such a way that um, what I actually believe is reflected in my life and that this public life of a writer is genuinely secondary to the private life of the artist. Hmm. And what have you been reading since you've been recovering and kind of trying to get back to the things that are important to you? A lot of poetry. Um, mm. I, uh, my, my first life as a literary person was as a poet. And I have, uh, in fact, it's been difficult for me to read novels and um, since, since coming back from the hospital. And so I've been reading a lot of poetry, a lot of George Oppen, a lot of Louise Glick, a lot of Shane McRae, um, who I think is a great young poet. And then one of the few novels that I have been able to read, and that actually was, I think, the only novel that I was able to read when I was actually in the ICU. When I did read, I read George Oppen and Louise Glick in the ICU, and I read Sigrid Nunez's book, her new book, mm -hmm. What Are You Going Through? And I love her work. I loved The Friend. And this new book, it really did feel, it was almost the, you know, I had brought other books with me. I brought Edith Wharton, I brought Philip Roth, or I had my partner bring them to me. And I just couldn't, um, even though I love those writers, I couldn't access them. But there was something about the Nunez book that felt like it was in conversation with something on the scale of what I suddenly felt I was facing in my own life. And I felt deeply grateful to the book for that. Well, Thank you so much for this conversation and this essay. I think it's really resonated with a lot of people and it certainly did for me, so. Oh, well, thank you so much and thanks for having me. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.